Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast. I am Jody Grimm and I am the girl who says what everyone is thinking, unapologetically myself as often as possible. I am here to laugh with you and have real conversations about all that life throws at us. I want to encourage you to own who you are, but not settle for it, to keep growing in your tenacity and your strength of character. The goal of this podcast is still the same three seasons in, that you will laugh, cry, and be challenged, but mostly that you will realize you are not alone in your struggles or your dreams. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, Ashley Lowe. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. We are very excited. Lindsay and I, Lindsay's here too. Say hi, Linz. Hello. Hello. How's everyone doing? No one can respond. That's Everyone's great. Just <laughs> questions. That's why I started a podcast. So I could just talk and no one could interrupt me. <laughs> Perfect. No, we are super excited to talk to Ashley today. Um, Lindsay and I were just mentioning that there's not a lot we know about pelvic floors, and we think this is commonplace that most people don't know a lot and would could really benefit from um, meeting with a pelvic floor specialist. So we're super excited to have you on here. And um, first of all, you look beautiful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> no one sees you but us, which is unfortunate because today you're like, I'll try to not look too haggard for tonight. I'm like, great. <laughs> I really did. I curled my hair and everything. You look beautiful. You look, so everyone, she's really beautiful and she has really sexy arms because I can already see oh, you. nice. You're, <laughs> you're really pumping my tires so far. This is nice. Oh, well, we really, I love arm muscles on women and I'm, I can't seem to get very much definition. I have a pretty prominent tricep, but nice, outside nice. of my tricep, it's pretty weak sauce and a little bit of a forearm muscle, which I haven't decided if that's like a little too masculine. No, no. And those are important. That's good. Yeah. They hold up most of my bones. So I'm glad. Um, But (laughs) most of them, most of them, why don't you tell us who you are a little bit about your background and kind of why you got into this industry and just who you are as a person also. Sure. So um, as Jody mentioned, my name is Ashley. I am a pelvic floor physiotherapist and I'm based out of Lethbridge, Alberta. Um, I have been practicing since the end of 2016, beginning of 2017, and pretty much right from the get-go, I got into pelvic health. Um, I There was a really big gap in Lethbridge in the care in this area, um, so it kind of seemed like a good fit between the fact that I was female, I was just coming out of school, we had a gap there, and it was a lot of overlap between what I was seeing in the gym setting where I coach and with my friends who were all having babies while I was going to school and then coming into this practice. And I was like, oh, this is just a really good melding of my two areas of interest. And it just kind of fell into place and is just kind of taken off from there. Um, So yeah, that's kind of career-wise. I am born and raised in Lethbridge. I just left briefly for schooling and then decided that it was an okay place. So I would want to come back. Um, and from, uh, yeah, from a personal standpoint, I am all about all things health and fitness. Um, I feel like it is one of the most important things that we have is our health. And so I try to both live and practice, um, in a way that kind of promotes that, uh, holistic view of everything. Um, so that is me in a nutshell. That's awesome. Do you, I was going to say, um, I spent my twenties, um, Heidi, 
is my best one of my best friends Heidi she lives in Lethbridge and was so excited when she talked to you I think like a year ago and she was like you have to talk to this girl she's so passionate and I said to her you need to be on a podcast and I was like wait my best friend has a podcast <laughs> best friend has a podcast so yeah so first of all, all all of my holidays in my 20s were in Lethbridge so I feel mm-hmm. like a very like I was poor and all that my Ford Escort could really do was drive five hours. So I really love Lethbridge. It has like a super special place in my heart. I had some nights at like the, I don't know, some of the bars there, the country bars, save a horse, ride a cowboy. Really good hugs, time. Yep. Love the bridge. <laughs> love the bridge. So yeah, no, that's awesome. And I think the reason part of this kept coming up is uh, Lindsay and I, well, Lindsay's 39. I'm 40, but Almost, like we're, we're, we're old, it's so hot, but um, people probably would think we're like 25. Um, but a lot of people in my life have been talking about these prolapses that are happening. And so recently, um, oh, I just was going to give someone's like personal medical history as my example. <laughs> Good catch. <laughs> Good catch. Someone I know um, just recently was diagnosed with a level of prolapse of their uterus. And mm-hmm. I had another friend who had had a prolapsed bladder. And so as I keep hearing these things and I'm not going to lie, like a few times this summer, I would either like someone would scare me or like I would turn too fast and I would pee. Then mm-hmm. I went to bed one night. <laughs> <laughs> It happens. It's okay. (laughs) I think it's because I mostly pee in the ocean every day. And I feel like sometimes when you're sleeping, there's a confusion there. This isn't about me though. And my um, bladder, but what I noticed was um, I told Lindsay, I don't do Kegels because they turn me on. And unless it's like eight 30 at night, I'm not going to be doing Kegels. And so (laughs) I know that I need, I know Pilates and stuff helps, but we just were so excited to have all your wisdom. And so that's kind of what brought this topic up. I feel like it just keeps popping up. And every time I talk to someone, they're like, yeah, I don't know anything about it. So it's kind of like a relatively new thing. And so generally what people come to see you, is it like I'm peeing my pants or I had a baby or are people proactive? Just like, I want to have a bladder and a pelvic floor, sorry, that ages well. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. So this is new-ish to North America, but okay. it is standard care and it has been around in like mainstream health in Europe and in Australia for years. So as usual, uh, we are a little bit behind compared to those other countries or other regions. Um, so I would say that it's not even necessarily a new form of treatment or therapy. It's just now getting a little bit more attention or kind of getting a little bit more mainstream in our specific uh, location now. So who do we see? We see everyone across the lifespan. So we'll have people like, you can come preventatively and we love that. So if we look at a woman's life, uh, for the majority of women, they may choose to have a child. Um, that's a big physical event on your floor, Um, whether it's a vaginal (laughs) delivery or a C-section, there's a lot of changes that occur in that area. And so what we have been really trying to do is say, hey, if you know you're gonna have this big event happening in your life, 
why don't we teach you some of these things now and teach you those changes that are going to happen during pregnancy, during delivery, in that postpartum period, so that we can come through that period in our life without a lot of these symptoms or lasting effects. So from a preventative standpoint, that's typically who we see. Most of the patients that we would see, I would say, are more kind of reactive or something has happened. They are already having symptoms and they're wanting to address those. And again, that can happen all across the lifespan. So we have kids who are coming to us who are having issues with bedwetting, with peeing while they're laughing, peeing while they're jumping during volleyball, things like that, constipation, all the way up to, I think my oldest patient on my caseload right now is like 87. And she's like, my granddaughter and my daughter have come to see you. And they said, they stopped, you stopped them from peeing their pants. So like, I want to do that too. And I was like, this is amazing. Like multi-generations <laughs> being able to talk about this. So it ranges. Um, symptom wise, again, ranges from things like leakage, um, leakage in response to kind of high pressure events, like coughing, sneezing, laughing, the typical ones that we think about. So that's stress incontinence. But there's also other forms in terms of like urgency. So when you're like, hey, when I got to go, I got to go right now or I'm going to leak. We call that urge incontinence. Um, so those are the those are kind of the two main forms of incontinence that we'll see. We obviously see people for what you were talking about before, which is pelvic organ prolapse. Um, that is a large discussion. There's lots of different types. There's lots of different symptoms, lots of different degrees. Um, but usually we'll see women who are either, again, trying to kind of prevent or they're experiencing those symptoms and wanting to get rid of them, wanting to avoid surgery or prolong that time until they have to get surgery. Uh, pain is another big one. So I would say that a lot of women are coming to us uh, with reports of pelvic pain, and that can be pain in the abdomen, that can be pain within the pelvic floor, pelvic organs themselves. So pain with intercourse, pain with tampon insertion, inability to have a pap exam or super painful pap exams, um, conditions like endometriosis, adenomyosis, those ones that have that kind of diffuse general pelvic pain. Um, and then we'll also see women during that prenatal and postnatal time. So again, like a time of massive change, I always equate the pregnancy and delivery time to um, a surgery, right? So like if somebody goes in for something like we have all these programs now for people who are getting knee or hip replacements, we'll send them for the education and the prehab before they even go in for the surgery. This is an elective surgery that has one joint. Yes, it's a big deal. But you are electing for that, you understand all that, you get all this education, and coming out of that, you have all of these massive supports. You have time off of work, you have access to rehab, you have access to all of these check-ins. But with pregnancy and delivery, all of a sudden it's like, okay, we won't really tell you anything. Here's this massive event, go home with this child and lack of sleep and just see how you repair and recover. Because that's just what we do, we just bounce back. So to compare those two, it's insane the way that we choose to view the pregnancy delivery postpartum time period. Um, so for me, that's an area of passion that I really love, even within the field of pelvic health, is being able to support a woman during their pregnancy, through delivery, through postpartum, so that they're not coming to me at age 40, 50, 60, 80 right. with these symptoms. Lindsay, did you have very much trauma from your vaginal birth? Did you have a vaginal birth? Mm -hmm. I did. Um, there, no. I mean, he was a big baby, but he's a giant. He was some big old boy, and he was eight <laughs> days late. 
Okay. So I was terrified. And my husband was a 10 pound preemie. So I was terrified, but it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. (laughs) Let's just put it that way. (laughs) Yes. He he, He was three weeks early and weighed 10 pounds, two ounces. Like he was in an incubator. Yeah. They're like this so, oversized turkey. <laughs> yeah. In an incubator, oh, little dad. Yes. So I, I know, I know. So yeah, he he was only eight pounds, 12 ounces. Okay, only eight pounds. I, th- I think the whole thing I is, is I, um, I, I did hypnobirthing. I did everything I could to try and be the person who like, breathes this baby out of my body and did it without drugs. And then in the end, I was like, give me all the drugs. And after 45 hours and he was faced the wrong way or whatever. Right. Um, but I tore like a star, um, and tore all around my anus also. So then when I went in for my six week or 12 week checkup, like the first time they put the, like, device into your and crank it open. Um, I had lost 20% of my vagina because my skin had grown over my scarring. So that was awesome. Um, but oh what, my gosh. the things that are so brutal is this, and that's why it's so powerful to have you come on. And we're just so excited that you're here, but to know that there are people to help in these situations, because the doctor was like, yeah, sorry, you won't be able to have sex for six more weeks. I was like, that's not a problem. I'm going to, I'm all right with that. But it's those sorts of things where I I needed help. Like Mm -hmm. I needed to know how to get this area of my, this very important area of my body back to what it was before. And so that's, you know, kind of what I wanted to ask you about is, well, first of all, like I said, I think everyone would probably benefit. I'm booked out here on Vancouver Island. I'm booked to go see someone in January and they also have clinical Pilates, which I'm excited to try as a method to just completely, I feel like that's probably the best way because I'm not doing it very well on my own. Um, but you create a space for people to say, like, I have this weird thing. Like, can you help me fix this sort of thing? So one of my questions is how, like, okay, well, my, my, my neighbor growing up, all of her bits fell out on the toilet. Like she almost died. So how do we know our bits might fall out? (laughs) Right. I'm like, what are the warning signs that I can be like, wow, I need to get into a pelvic floor specialist outside of like a better sex life outside of not peeing myself or my bits like falling out. I don't know. Yeah, no. And that's a, that's a good, good question. Uh, So typically, and this is where like clinically we find, I find two different camps. So when we start talking about this and we start telling women, Hey, here's the signs of pelvic organ prolapse. Do you feel pressure? Do you feel heaviness? Do you see or feel a bulge when you wipe? If you are comfortable with doing self-exams, when you look, do you see a bulge? This is good if we teach you and you know what your normal anatomy looks like first. (laughs) So I have the camp of women who don't know what their normal anatomy looks like first before having kids, anything like that. And they come back into me postpartum because they're like, okay, I check and they are freaked out because they're like I see this bump I see this bulge I see this ridge whatever it is and we have to go through that like some of these things are just part of your normal anatomy because as a female we're usually taught don't look don't touch don't ask questions it's just kind of what's down there we don't really know what's down there um so 
it's nice for us to be able to explain what those things actually are and teach you so that if you do feel any of those symptoms, that's an indicator to be like, hey, I'd like to get checked out. But at the end of the day, still get checked out by a provider that knows how to look for those things. And typically that type of provider is going to be either your pelvic floor physiotherapist, a gynecologist, or a GP who specializes in women's health. So not just like not every physiotherapist can check for this. Not every GP feels comfortable checking for this. So I've had loads of women say, hey, I did go into my GP. I asked and they didn't find anything. Or they'll go in and be like, hey, I was doing this exam and my GP said this. And when we test them, I'm like, oh, hey, no, it's okay. Like, this is what this is. Um, so ultimately getting yourself checked if you are worried about it. If you're feeling pressure, heaviness, you're noticing that bulge when you're wiping or feeling that bulge or seeing it, those would be big indicators to go get it checked. Um, the other thing would be to get it checked around times of change. So i.e. if I am pregnant, if I just had a baby, or if I'm approaching menopause. Which is like 49 to 51-ish? Ooh, that it varies. Um, it can be anywhere in that. So as soon as women sort of around like 45 and above are starting to experience that, like, okay, my periods are really, really spaced out or really wonky. We can start to kind of talk about that as well. Cause there are some tissue changes that can occur during that time. And again, if we can be proactive before those things happen, we don't see as many of those symptoms kind of come up. I thought it just got dusty in there. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's the other thing so many women have these like preconceptions of being like well of course I'm going to pee myself after I've had a baby or of course my bits are going to fall out or yeah when I hit menopause it's just going to be dry or it's just going to be again things are falling out I have to go get this surgery and it's like the only reason that those things are so commonplace is because we haven't given the adequate care leading up to those events so of course it's common it would be the same thing again if somebody went in for a knee surgery and we were just like okay, see you in six weeks, just don't do anything. And then you come back in in six weeks and they don't even look at your knee and they're like, hey, you waited the six weeks, you're good, go live life. And you'd be like, I can't bend this thing. I can't run on it. I can't walk on it. My quads all atrophied. Like you want me to just now go live life? And they're like, yeah. Like we would never be okay with that. We would never accept that as kind of a full care for something like a knee surgery, but yet we've done that for women postpartum for a very long time. Well, and we know the benefits, like Lindsay and I both love fitness, love activity, love lifting weights, everything. We know mm. how, I know how, like I had a breast reduction a few years ago, but before that I had to do rows and stuff on a regular basis because if my, if I didn't keep my upper back really strong, I felt so rickety. Right. And so much like we need to look at our pelvic floor, like every other part of our body. I want to keep my heart strong. I want yes. to keep my arms and my, my legs strong. So I need to also keep my pelvic floor strong because it's holding everything up. Right. It is. It is. And like, you think about, so you're naming all those other things of like my back, my heart, things like that. Now add on something that happened to that area. Right. Right. Like if you add on the fact, if somebody had say like a heart attack, you'd be like, yeah, for sure. We need to be doing some like cardiovascular type of activity to help with that. So you can have pelvic floor symptoms, dysfunction, however you want to term it, even if you haven't had children, but that's, that is an increased risk factor for having some of these things. And so it's just like, let's just take care of you guys while that's happening so that all of this stuff doesn't last for the rest of your life or give you symptoms later on. 
Well, that's super helpful. Lindsay, do you have any questions? Yeah. yeah. Can you just explain like what all encompasses the pelvic floor? Like, is it one specific part? Is it all the parts? <laughs> is it my pooper? Because you just said something a minute ago and I was like, my, because I always tell my kids, like, I'm like, don't grunt, don't like push, like just yeah. breathe it out. But now I'm like, now when you said that, I was like constipation. What? Yeah. 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 So, and this is, yeah, this is a good point. Um, and it would be so helpful if I could uh, be seen on camera because then I could bring up a little model, but basically, so your pelvic floor muscles are generally what we are talking about. When people say pelvic floor, they're kind of leaving out the muscle part. So your pelvic floor muscles are a hammock of muscles that live at the base of your pelvis. So they attach from your pubic bone. So that bone pretty much right in front of your urethra all the way to your tailbone and then across either sit bones, those bones in the bottom of your bum, and they encompass all three openings. So urethral opening, vaginal opening, rectal opening. So those, and we've got different layers. We've got kind of a deep layer and then a more superficial layer. So they have a variety of functions. Um, and those, again, when we're, when people are abbreviating pelvic floor, they're generally saying pelvic floor muscles. Now, what sits on top of those pelvic floor muscles are your pelvic organs. So your bladder, which lives in the front, uterus attached to vagina, as long as we've not had a hysterectomy in the middle, and then rectum in through the back. So those are your pelvic organs. And then those pelvic organs internally are supported by your endopelvic fascia and all of the ligaments that are kind of the passive supports inside. And they sit at the base of what's called your abdominal canister. And the boundaries of your abdominal canister are your pelvic floor muscles on the bottom, your diaphragm on the top, your abdominal muscles on the front, and then your deep back muscles on the back. And they kind of create this closed pressure system, which ultimately is what we're trying to manage when we're managing things like stress incontinence or pelvic organ prolapse. Um, so it is, it's a, it's an area <laughs> um, that encompasses a lot of different things. But generally when people say, do your pelvic floor exercises or go, like if there's an issue with your pelvic floor, generally they're kind of talking about the muscles, but we need to recognize that that encompasses all of those things. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> you can see my yeah, hand gestures. The audience can't. So sorry. I know. No, that was really good. But, um, okay. I had another question and I already forgot it. Did you have a question, Jody? Um, so many. I, do boys have pelvic floors? Pardon? Do men have pelvic floors? Oh, yes, yes. So men, uh, same thing, except for that, obviously, they don't have a vagina and uterus. Um, so there's just encompasses their two openings. And then the, the muscles are a little bit differently shaped just because our um, sex organs are a little bit differently shaped. So yes, men can have the exact same issues that women can have. Typically prolapse, not as big of a thing with them, but they can have leakage. They can have erectile dysfunction. They can have pain with intercourse. They can have issues with urgency, frequency. Um, so yeah, same things apply, a little bit different shape, but essentially the functions are the same. That's so fascinating. I think my next do thing, you, oh, go ahead, Lens. Oh, do you see or treat men or? Mm -hmm. that? Yep. 
Yeah, you do. Okay. Yeah, I'd say the majority of the men um, that we see so post prostatectomy. So when men have had prostate cancer and they've gone in for that surgery, um, that is one group that I feel very strongly about that we are underserving. Those men should be in pelvic floor physio by that six week mark as soon as they're cleared. Um, and a lot of times they're being delayed. So they're dealing with symptoms of incontinence, impotence, things like that for much longer than they need to. Um, so that's a big group. The pain group as well. So lots of men have pain with intercourse, pain with arousal, pain with ejaculation. Um, so we deal with that. And then a lot of men have issues again with things like uh, retention. So they feel like they have to go to the bathroom all the time. They can only let little amounts out um, or even frequency. They're just kind of going to the bathroom all the time. Issues with a condition called interstitial cystitis. Um, so those are, those would be kind of the main ones that we would see for men, but yes, we see men. So a man could, so I know that a lot of times as men age, it's like they're, I've heard a few people in my life say, it's like, I'm like peeing in tiny spurts. Like it takes me an hour to get my pee out. Cause I sit there forever. So you can help them with that as they're aging. Like you have exercises maybe that will help them push that flow out somehow. Yeah, potentially. And so this is also where, um, like with a lot of pelvic floor conditions, it is not as simple as like, oh, you fall into a medication category, you fall into a surgical category, you fall into a physio category, you fall into a uh, site category, you fall into a behavioral. It's a mix of all, all of these things. Um, and so understanding like where my role is within that whole spectrum is super important. So potentially, and so those men, usually those ones that as they're aging, if they're having issues with emptying, they are being referred from a urologist. So okay. the doctor that kind of specializes in that and they have cleared, they are testing their PSA, everything like that to make sure that some of those issues are not coming specifically just from a, an enlarged prostate or anything like that. And if they have cleared them from that and they're still having those kind of prostate-itis like symptoms or urgency, frequency, retention, things like that, then they send them to us to be like, okay, medically, like surgically, they're clear from this. They don't need that. Here, here you go. Here's your turn. And so then we look at it from our realm and I go, okay, here's all the things that I can do. And then when I'm like, okay, we've maxed out what is in my realm. I'm like, who's next? And then we look at that. That's, this is just so much. <laughs> it, it is. So awesome. <laughs> but it's good. It's so good. Should we switch to like, it makes me think, and I just like to say things out loud. Um, but it makes me think of how the generation, like my parents' generation is they accept everything as aging mm -hmm. and I accept none of these things. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and so I think that's, what's really cool is I, I have like, I want to say a whole team of people. Like I have an acupuncturist, I have a chiropractor, I have a massage therapist. I have, you know, like all these people that make my life way better. Um, but I think it's similar, like even with period symptoms and stuff, like my acupuncturist is like, do not just accept what your symptoms are. Like they're, they're there for a reason to give you indicators of what your body might need. And so often we're like, oh, I'll just take a few pills and make that, make that indicator go away. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, so, um, I'd love to switch to periods. Lindsay, do you have any other questions outside of like men or anything else before we go to periods? Um, no, I don't. I would like to move on to periods, please. <laughs> Ready for what we all love to talk about. Hey? Well, I actually had a grade four teacher who told me that I was going to become a woman 
And I waited with bated breath for like till grade seven. When I got my period, I was so excited. There was blood in my panties. And I I actually (laughs) feel like I still to this day see it as a super important cleansing in my body. So I'm like, I am a person who like, I value my period. I feel like it means I'm functioning. It means things are happening as they're supposed to. It's my body cleansing itself out. So I should teach grade four kids about periods because I love period stuff so much. And I'm just, I love being a woman and it's just a beautiful part. It means I can give birth and not for everybody, but you know, that's what it means for me. So, or meant for me, I guess. So love period talk personally. Um, I know that, that, um, uh, it's so hard not to out everyone's personal health stories. I'm like, so someone, I'm doing a very good job of catching you. Um, someone I know, um, wanted to try a diva cup. I've been using a diva cup since 2015. Now, when you talk about us not knowing what's going on down there, it's like such a funny thing. So before my diva cup, I'd never really put my hands inside my body. And, um, it just feels like there's just, well, another talk about how it feels like it's too big down there. It also feels like it's so small. It's, it's too big down there after foreplay, but it's too small down there. When I go to put a diva cup in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a real thing that's that's after periods really quickly um sexual health but no so anyways I I don't know my body and I don't understand the inside of my body and I kind of understand like the tilt you know where I have to get it up but one of my friends was told that her body really didn't work with a diva cup because there was some some level of other stuff happening in there so my question was is, is there a way to know if you can or can't use a diva cup and what is your take on diva cups? Yeah. So this it's, it's super, super individual. So the, to answer the question about who should wear a diva cup, if you want to try a diva cup, you can, there is so much out there right now about like, do diva cups cause prolapse or can you do this? Like if you use them right. And if you use them well, no, Um, there are different types where some create suction, some don't. And that is where there's a lovely little website called put a cup in it. And it gives you a quiz that helps you understand which type of either menstrual disc or menstrual cup would be the most appropriate for you. And they go through questions based on like your flow. Do you have any of these diagnoses? So then that goes back again to being like, when you're, I hear this all the time. I don't know my own body. I don't know. I'll go through the anatomy and people are like, that's what that is. I didn't know they were that close. I didn't know that's what I was feeling. So sometimes it is nice to just get you guys in and just teach you your own anatomy because that can be important. Because how are we supposed to answer a question about, do you have any pelvic organ prolapse? Do you have issues with pain? All of these types of things. If you're just like, I don't really even know. There's just an opening and that's where it goes. So it's, it's, there's different types, there's different sizes, there's different shapes, and that is normal. We are all different sizes, shapes, we've got different tilts, we've got different angles, we've got different tone in our musculature, we've got different levels of mobility through our pelvic organs, Um, we've got different flows, so that's going to be a big, I love that there's a thing going around right now where women are asking their partners, have you seen that on Instagram where it's like, they're like, um, it's a quiz to see how many men know things about women's bodies and they're going through and saying like, okay, why is there different sizes of tampons? And all the guys are like, I know that one, there's different sizes of vaginas. And we're like, and then we start asking women that and most women are going, oh, it's because we have different sizes of vaginas. Oh, 
I am in vaginas all day long, all day long. And I can tell you that for the majority of people, even a supersized tampon is not taking up your entire vaginal cavity. We have different sizes of tampons for different amounts of flows. Right. That's what I thought it was. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's just funny how like, this is something that almost every woman is going through. We pretty much all have periods at some point in our life. Um, weird that we don't all kind of know a little bit more about it. That's shocking. It's like, it's shocking. Lindsay, are you using the Diva Cup brand? Um, no, I found one that's made in Portland, Oregon, and I cannot remember the name of it, like Daisy Cup or something. It's softer. It's, is it like the disc or is it like? Yeah, the it's the cup. It's a cup. And it's a little softer. Okay. I, I think yeah. too, something that I'm a big believer in, we are made to do hard things. And obviously you have to know your body's limits, but I, I have so many funny blood spatter CSI. I always say like diva cup stories where it like pops in your face and you're like, Oh, gross. Like, I feel like there are so many funny stories I have because of my diva cup. But I have to say that as I, after kids, I bled so much more than before that it would be like an hour. And I was done a super and I switched to a diva cup out of necessity. And it's been a game changer in the fact that I feel clean and dry for mostly the whole time. And other than a little bit of, um, cramping and stuff, the first day, I feel like it's, it's, it's a lot more manageable. Like the cup made it a lot more manageable, but I think people have to be willing to, um, to practice a bit. It's like anything. It's a bit of a practice figuring out. Um, mm -hmm. I know if I get it in on the first day of my period, like when I first see signs of flow, it'll, it'll, it's like almost like it forms its own little spot. And then when I take it out, it goes right back to its spot and it stays there. But if I wait till like day two, it's so like swollen and crazy in there, or I don't know what's happening. I can't even get it to open mm -hmm. Is that like a thing, like during our flow that our body changes. Uh, well, Yes, your body, well, your body's constantly changing throughout your cycle, right? With building up, turning down, things like that. Um, but yeah, it's, and it goes even beyond like whether or not that's the most appropriate product for you or things like that. Like some women just aren't comfortable and we can't make that decision for them, aren't comfortable with putting things inside or exploring their own anatomy, or they have so much pain that they can't use an internal product like that. So there's, there's all of these things where it's like, yes, if you are somebody who's like, I have no pain with that. I'm fine with kind of fishing around with things in there. It doesn't bug me anything like that. Those are great products to use. Um, not everybody can do that. So we have all those other wonderful and amazing products. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard topic and it's very individual. And so my role is to be able to support you in what you want to do. So if you're a woman saying like, no, I have no interest in that. How do I control my bleeding with all these other products? I need to be able to tell you which ones those are. Or if you're like, okay, this one's not fitting. What are my other options? We need to go there. And there are times where women will bring it in and be like, I've tried this thing so many times. Can you fit it? And we will, we'll go through how to insert. We'll see if it fits properly. And if we're like, oh, it's just the wrong fit. It's not you. Then we can order it. We can order a different one. Oh, so you have tools at your disposal, like things, different, different things we wouldn't have access to probably. No, not necessarily. Like with those ones, it's literally that the woman will sometimes just bring it in and be like, 
what am I doing wrong? Like it's constantly leaking or things like this. And so when they, I'll get them to put it in, we'll check and I'll be like, oh, it's just cause this angle or it'll be like, oh no, that's just like the wrong fit or it's not gonna jive with what's going on in terms of their level of pelvic organ prolapse or something like that. Um, and then we can make that decision. So it's not like I have special tools. It's just that I have a better angle. <laughs> of entry because I can sit down there and go okay what can I feel a little bit nicer than when you guys are trying to fiddle around um kind of upside down or not being able to see and so it's just one more set of eyes to be like where is this supposed to go what is it supposed to feel like and then we can go from there do you have like one is there a preferred method is there like like if do you wish everybody would just use pads or like, do you have like one thing that you would prefer everyone to use or is it really individual? It's so individual um, because I think each of those products has a, has a benefit and has a risk, right? Where it's like, okay, yeah. we have the risk of inserting something into our body, which increases, could potentially increase risk of infection. If we've got something on our fingers, um, could increase the risk of with the tampons and stuff like that, toxic shock. But from the outside, it's like with some of the pads, we have risk of vulvar irritation um, or leaking through our underwear, things like that. So it's it's about it's about me supporting you for what product is going to make you feel the best during that time, both in terms of symptom control, cleanliness, what you're comfortable with. So I there, I don't think there is one best product for everyone because everyone has a different scenario. Um, and again, my role in that is to be like, okay, what do we need to do for you? Are you somebody that doesn't have access to a bathroom for a while and we can't have any leaks and we can't have anything happening? You have super bad skin irritation. You're fine with inserting something. Maybe we use a combination of like period underwear and a cup so it can stay in there a bit longer and we're good. Maybe you're somebody who has access all the time and you just are, you can't put anything internally because it's so painful. Then we're like, okay, here's this brand of like powder, reusable powder period underwear so that we can make sure that it's okay for you. Um, but that is a very, as long as it's allowing you to do your life during that time period, that's all I care about. Well, imagine you were okay. a surgeon. Hmm? Imagine you were a surgeon. Like how yeah. would you change all, like, you know, you're doing a 10 hour surgery or something. Oh, I yeah. can stay focused for two hours. That's why I'm not a surgeon. <laughs> That's the only reason. That's the only reason. Totally, totally qualified. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. I have a question about ovulation. So my ovulation is actually when I feel the most likely to pee a little. I feel like everything just like wants to make babies and it's so like alive and well, I don't know, all the words sound gross now when I go to say them, but just like, I feel like it's a time when everything is fertile. And I did, um, before having babies, I did, uh, like my basal, my basal cell temperature and all that stuff. Is that what it's called? Basal cell temperature, um, to, to avoid having babies. And I like understood my discharge and I learned all that stuff. And so I think, I think because of that, I knew that like my cervix feels like this, or it feels like this, like based on, oh, I guess no one can see my face, but based on ovulation or not. So during ovulation, is that like normal that I would be a little bit more like loose or something during ovulation? Um, <laughs> we can get into the topic of looseness. Um, it's not all of a sudden Let's that you're just going to like, it's not all of a sudden that you're just going to have this like 
massive opening that's just like I'm ready but there are changes right because there's a like and this is getting a little bit out of the scope of just like pelvic floor physio getting into actual like human physiology and what happens through your cycle in terms of like that first follicular phase of like we're laying down we have more estrogen we're laying down those building bricks then ovulation occurs and we have all this progesterone that kind of keeps those building blocks there so we have that natural change or that kind of flip in some of those things and that does cause a change in symptoms because those different hormones have different impacts on tissues in our body so yes it is quite common for us to hear I start to have more symptoms. I feel more pressure heaviness. I get more leakage either around ovulation or like the few days leading up to my period or the week of my period, because that's, those are big times of changes in those hormone levels. It doesn't typically change the actual, uh, structure <laughs> of things, okay. but even like with what you said, in terms of like mucus tracking and things like that, we do tend to see more of that different type of discharge in that second half or around ovulation. And sometimes women mistake that for leakage because there's just more wetness. Yeah. That drives me crazy. That's why I am an advocate for changing your panties multiple times a day. Yeah. Yep. Um, so yeah, that's, it's, it's not all, yeah, it's not like all of a sudden you just like lost pelvic floor tone or things like that. Okay. So probably like, I might see a difference with strengthening my pelvic floor, regardless, I would probably see changes in my body if I strengthened that all month long. Right. Are you, are you asking that if you did pelvic floor exercises that you wouldn't notice those same symptoms? Yeah. Are those all going to go away? <laughs> Potentially. So yes. Like if we, if we know, can pelvic floor physio change the natural physiology of your body to like not have those hormonal changes? Absolutely not. We are not impacting that whatsoever. What we try to do is say, okay, these changes are happening in your body around this time. Here's what you can do at that time. That's going to help you limit some of those symptoms. So that could be for some women that could be, yeah, around this time, we might kind of ramp up some of those pelvic floor exercises for other women. It might be, Hey, we're going to ramp up some of your down training exercises or relaxation exercises for other women. It might be, Hey, we're going to introduce a little bit more inversion positions, or we might take away some impact activity or things like that around those couple of days. So again, very individual to what symptoms uh, a woman is experiencing, why that might be occurring. Um, and then adapting it to, again, their lifestyle. So we can't, we don't blanket statement say, okay, everyone, every woman, every time that they're ovulating, you all have to do this. And then the week leading up to your period, you have to do this because it's like, well, woman A might be somebody who is super into yoga, Pilates, woman B might be a marathon runner, woman C might be a CrossFit athlete and woman D might be like, I don't like physical activity at all. I just want to sit and read. Um, all of those things are fine and they are going to experience that change through their cycle potentially very differently. So do I need all of those women doing the same thing just because they're following a typical menstrual pattern? No. So it's probably more about learning to listen to our body individually, even. Yep. Like yeah, learning and then learning those strategies to kind of combat if you are symptomatic. And it's a symptom that bothers you, right? There's some women who are like, you know what, that, um, the couple days around ovulation, I feel that increased heaviness. It doesn't bother me because I know there's nothing wrong. And I'm like, well, then we don't need to do anything. That's okay. Yeah. I think learning, we don't need to get rid of every feeling we have, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like this must not be okay. I can feel my uterus, 
or whatever, right? I always say that ovulation for me since having kids is like a hen squeezing out an egg and it just falls into this dusty hollow. That's what it feels like. Cause I feel it more <laughs> than I feel my period. I don't feel my period much, but I'm very like right now I'm ovulating. I'm very aware of it, but I'm okay with being aware of it. Like you said, it doesn't cause me any pain. It's more just kind of annoying, but mm-hmm. at the same time, I, I know that it's a good thing that's happening in my body. I was just really curious. So yeah, my physiology doesn't change, but maybe my, how it presents itself in my body changes mm-hmm. things. But I think even, um, as I've gotten a little bit older, I used to go hard every day of the month with workouts, no matter what my body felt like. And I felt like that made me like a warrior kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think in the last while I'm, I'm more aware that like during ovulation, I might want to do yoga. I might want to do something a little more gentle. And, um, I, so I think even in that way, learning to listen to what our body needs in that day, even for movement, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're peeing your pants every two minutes during ovulation, well, maybe first of all, they should visit you. But then second of all, also, maybe that's not the type of movement I should do during ovulation. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And there is, there's a lot of that going around right now too, in terms of like, um, adapting training to your cycle, adapting your eating to your cycle, everything like that, and kind of finding this cyclical pattern of living. And for some women, they really jive with that and they like that. Other women, again, do I need every single woman around ovulation on their period to stop those things? No, because some women don't have symptoms and for a variety of reasons. And a lot of them are not coming down straight to the pelvic floor muscle end of things. But like we all, we all are going to have a bit of a different presentation, right? We know those women who are like, I barely bleed on my period. I don't feel anything. My period lasts for two days. Those women are and you're so like, crazy. okay, that's nice. And then you have other women that are like, I can't get out of bed for three days. And I soak through all of these pads and it's intense pain. And so those women, it's going to look very different in terms of what their treatment is going to be. And again, who's involved. So going back to that kind of whole team approach where it's like some of this stuff that we're talking about right now is more going to be addressed by other practitioners within the team that are looking after this, not just pelvic floor physio depending on why those symptoms are occurring, we can be part of that team for sure. And we like, we are going to be, but we are likely not going to be the only team member. Oh, that's fast. That's okay. really interesting. So then we have a few more questions. I'm trying to be aware of time. Um, let's talk Kegels. Okay. Why do these turn me on so much? Why can't I do these? I can't do them in public. Lindsay and I found, we used to go to the gym together when we were in our twenties and there was like one machine that I was like, Lindsay, I can't do this machine. It turns me on so much. I don't know if something's wrong with me or if I'm just blessed. If I'm just blessed. (laughs) You're probably more blessed. Um, You'll find me on the leg lift. I'll be over there. (laughs) I'll be on the add up your machine. The squeezing one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So the like let's just go through the term kegel so the term kegel um came from one of the doctors in kind of the 20th century his name was dr arnold kegel and they named this contraction after him because he started he kind of started some of the research on using pelvic floor muscle training as opposed to surgery and medications and other interventions for incontinence so what a kegel is trying to describe is your pelvic floor muscles contracting The reason that we try to get away from the term Kegel is because people have a very strong connotation. So in my first assessment, when I see you, part of my first thing is I go, show me what a Kegel is. When I'm, when I'm doing my internal exam, I go, you tell me what you think a Kegel is. 95% of women 
one, they, they just don't know. They'll get on the table and be like, I have no idea. I have no idea where these muscles are. If they kind of do know where the muscles are, what I get is one type of a contraction, which is this kind of like quick, grippy, repeated contraction. Understanding that your pelvic floor muscles are a group of muscles like any other body part. So like your bicep, like your quad, like your calf. We don't contract those muscles in one way. We also don't keep them contracted. So a lot of women say, okay, I just need to squeeze those muscles all day long and I'll be super strong. If you walked around clenching your bicep all day long, how functional would your arm be? Yeah. You couldn't use it. I couldn't extend my arm to reach because my bicep would be keeping it close. My arm would also feel extremely sore and tired and full. So understanding that the term Kegel carries a lot of connotations, we try to break away from that and call it a pelvic floor muscle contraction so that people understand that there's a shortening phase, that contraction phase, but we also need the relaxation phase because that's a fully functioning muscle group. Um, so with that Kegel or pelvic floor contraction, pelvic floor muscle contraction, there are different types of contractions. So we can have an endurance contraction. So kind of a submaximal hold where you're not squeezing as hard as you can, maybe 50% or less, but you're holding it for a very long time. That's a very common thing. There's a lot of those kind of slow twitch muscle fibers in our pelvic floor group. We also have those quick flicks. So think something, and this is kind of leading into what you're saying, an orgasm. So a woman's orgasm, you get that repeated pelvic floor contraction. So that is one of the functions of your pelvic floor muscles is sexual function. So when you contract those muscles, it should feel kind of similar if you're doing all of them, or especially doing kind of more of that superficial group, it should feel similar to an orgasm. So for you being like that kind of turns me on, great. That means oh, so that I was doing it right. experiencing. Yeah. So this is a good thing. That's so interesting. And actually, since you, since Lindsay asked you to kind of explain what the pelvic floor is now that I can like picture it, like mm -hmm. I'm picturing it being like my vagina or something. But when, when you explain that hammock, like mm -hmm. you said, it's like pulling up the hammock. Is that right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Like, yeah. Which yeah. I think like a lot of the, I, I believe that once we are totally clear on the visual of it, it helps me know in my whether I'm doing like posterior chain exercises or I'm doing like um, ab work or I'm even sort of any sort of like, even like a deep, like a kettlebell squat or a goblet squat or something like I'm pulling it up, right? Like when I picture that, then I'm like, I'm probably using it a lot. I just haven't been aware that that's what that is. 100%. And so going back to that abdominal canister, that's why we look at that because the way that women use their abs, use their breath has a massive impact on what your pelvic floor is doing. So when we see people brace in a type of way where they're kind of really bearing down on the pelvic floor, we're like, we don't like that. If we have people who are really apically breathing, they're chronically sucking in their stomach and everything's just moving very shallow. We don't like that either. So it's, it's understanding how all those systems function. And yes, you're correct. So when you squat or when you pick up your kids or when you jump or you run and you don't have leakage or just in general, even if you do have some amount of leakage, your pelvic floor should be coming on in response to that because it's part of the muscle group that is active during those activities. When we have things like stress incontinence or like pelvic organ prolapse, there's just an imbalance between how much pressure we're able to generate with that abdominal canister and the supports. So down below, so pelvic floor muscle strength and those ligaments. So that's where 
sometimes we need to adjust those things if we're having symptoms and if we don't, that's great. Well, and I, I would think like a, a year ago or something, I had an issue with a calf, like my left, le- my left leg, my left hamstring, my left calf muscle. And then I ended up with, um, what is it in your foot where your foot goes weird? And then you, in your heat, there's like a pain in your heel, plantar fasciitis. Right. I ended up all in one leg. And my chiropractor was like, you're not engaging this left glute. Like, so it, it, all, all the things that can stem from that one root cause that causes a trickle effect of, of um, trauma in other areas or problems in other areas. Cause I, I couldn't engage that glute. So then when I started doing those practice engagement exercises, it started teaching my brain to engage that area. Right. And so if we like, so do you think then that, um, the Kegels are like a prescription for all women then, or are you, I mean, what did you call them? Pelvic? What did you call it? Pelvic? Pelvic floor muscle contractions. Pelvic floor muscle contractions. So you don't like give that as, um, like I know someone who has a prolapsed uterus and it's a stage two to three, and they were just told do 150 Kegels a day. And I was like, I'm going to ask Ashley about this because I feel like that's not the best advice. Is that a prescription? At times it can be, but we can't, and we kind of talked about this before we started recording. We can't tell you what to do without doing an exam. Because if you come to me and you say, Ashley, I'm having symptoms of like pressure and heaviness in my pelvic floor. Most people go, oh, hey, that's prolapse. As a pelvic floor physio, that's immediately where we're like, hey, I'm going to clear that she doesn't have that. But you can also get those same sensations by having a pelvic floor muscle group that's super, super tight and clenched all the time. So if I just say, oh, hey, you're having pressure heaviness or, oh, hey, you're having leakage, go do all these Kegels. Number one, that may not be the actual appropriate treatment for that because you may be clenching too much. So we don't, we already don't know if that's even appropriate. Number two, if I just say the word Kegel and don't teach you what to do, and by teaching, I mean the best way to teach and the best form of feedback is to either observe or be internal. Because ultimately, I shouldn't be able to tell that you are doing a pelvic floor contraction without feeling internally or viewing that perineum. Because I shouldn't see it show up in your abs. I shouldn't see it show up in your glutes. I shouldn't see it show up in your eyes or your breathing. It should just be isolated. You should see some of that. I'll get this like whole body people. Um, I do. Yeah, you can see. And I'm like, I shouldn't, we should be able to have a conversation. You should be able to do whatever you want down there. And I shouldn't be able to tell unless I'm in there. So number two with that is even if you say that word, it doesn't mean that they're doing it right. It'd be the same thing as if you were like, so going back to your example, if I was like, oh, you just need to do squats, go do 150 squats. And I didn't check that you knew what a squat was. And you come back and you're like, Ashley, this isn't working. And I'm like, well, that's weird. Squats are supposed to help strengthen your glutes. And I'm like, show me what you've been doing. And you've been doing calf raises. I'd be like, well, that's not right. No wonder it's not working. So a lot of these things are thrown out because at the end of the day, is pelvic floor muscle training or pelvic floor muscle strengthening helpful at times for some forms of incontinence and prolapse? Yes. So what those 
uh, I'm going to be careful, what the providers who are just kind of spitting those ones out for a symptom profile are doing is they're pulling from knowing and saying they're trying to do something good, being like, I've read that strengthening these muscles can help with this. That is accurate, but you cannot give any form of treatment without doing an assessment first. That's the whole problem with the Instagram health model right now, which is saying, here's three exercises to blank, 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 help with your low back pain help with your pelvic floor strength. It's like, all it's meant to do is give you awareness. Then you need to go see somebody and actually learn what that means. Learn if that is in fact what you need instead of just being like, oh, hey, I'll do these things. Because for some of those, it might not be beneficial. It actually might be more harmful. Well, and are most pelvic floor specialists, um, I want to say kinesiologists, but um, physiotherapists. Yeah, so in terms of like, most yes so pelvic floor physiotherapists we're the ones that you're going to see and see repeated times your other specialists that specialize in pelvic floor concerns are going to be like your gynecologists your ob's things like that again we have and urologists so we all have our little component right so a lot of women and i hear this all the time they'll feel frustrated because they'll go into their GP. They'll say, Hey, I'm having these symptoms of leakage or pain with intercourse or prolapse. And GP goes, I know the specialist for that. They write a letter to gynae woman waits in our city. They're waiting like two or three years. They go to gynae and gynae's like, this isn't surgical. It's not medicinal. Like there's nothing I can do for you. And while that's true from their perspective, there are so many things we can do, but where you needed to be sent was us. So, and the reverse is true. Sometimes women come into us and they're like, Hey, I heard pelvic floor physio can help with all these things. We do our exam. And I'm like, that's not mechanical. That's not structural. That's not within our biopsychosocial thing. And like, I really feel like this is actually something to do with like hormonal imbalance or, um, you need some form of medication or anything like that. And then I push them back that way to say, Hey, let's get this sorted out. So it's that balance of seeing like, okay, for the majority of women, there is a combination of both of those things. Um, but understanding which provider is going to give you which care, because just because they're those specialists with like the gynees, the euros, everything, like they are amazing at what they do. They have so much knowledge in what they are able to offer you, but they don't do what we do. We don't do what they do. Okay. And well, and I think what you've kind of gotten across clearly, even when we talked about men or a few things is if we're having some serious pain, we should go to our GP, have them, you know, kind of rule out some of those other things as well. Like, I think a person should see you regardless, but like you said, if you know what you want to know, it's not prostate cancer. You want to know like some of those certain things, we still need to have our regular checkups, but it's a great idea to not just take someone saying like whether a GP or a gynae says they can't help you don't, maybe don't settle for that. Maybe check out mm-hmm. a pelvic floor specialist and see if there's something um, that can be done. I know I feel like with my um, GP and stuff, they were always like, why are you here again? You don't have any, anything we need to medicate. And I'm like, well, I'm here because I I'm, aren't I supposed to come and have you check all the things and make sure I'm still good. And it almost seemed like they were weirded out that I didn't I was wasting their time sort of in my experience. And so that's where, um, I still, I I just want to, um, be as proactive as possible about my health. Right. And so people should also consider you guys for that as a part of our entire health regime with all the other things we think of. 
Yeah. And it is, it's, it's hard because when those GPs are in a hard spot, <laughs> they're expected to know everything about everything. And that is just not humanly possible. So their role is that gatekeeper of you going in and saying, Hey, so what should happen? And ideally, hopefully eventually will is you go in with a pelvic floor concern or pelvic health concern. What we're just like any other concern is that we're trying to get them to send you to the lowest level of treatment first, which is conservative management, which is physiotherapy, whether that's, I have shoulder pain or I have incontinence. It's like, let's assume that these are, we learned this in physio school, think horses, not zebras. So let's assume that the majority of the people who come in with these symptoms are going to get better with that conservative management. So you come in with those symptoms, they put you into us and we go, okay, let's look at our stuff. So we look at our things and then within ours, because we're so used to looking at that area and specializing in that area, we are in a better position to be able to say, you know what, this doesn't fit with what we normally see or normally treat. I think that this is the time for the specialist versus the reverse of saying, okay, let's put you there first. Let's wait for two years with all of these symptoms. And then they push you back here. I see so many people who are disappointed who have suffered with symptoms for longer than they needed to when if we did the reverse that's a much quicker thing we're a lot easier to get into we're a lot cheaper um so you go to that and if same thing we're not going to keep you on our caseload if we're like there is some kind of red flag going on something is happening like you might come into me if you came into me and you're like actually i'm having um pain with intercourse I'm bleeding with it, all of these types of things. And I do my exam and I'm like, there's no like mechanical factors leading to this. She's clear on all these other things that for me, I'd be like, I need you to go see this person. But on the flip side, I have the majority of women coming in saying, I'm having pain with intercourse. And there's all of these things that we can work on and fix. And we don't even need to go there. We don't need meds. We don't need surgery. We don't need procedures. We need the stuff that we can do together right away. So yeah, kind of understanding that it's okay. It's okay to go to that lower level first because we should be able to be like, you know what? No, that's not me. You're clear from this standpoint. I'm not the one that you need. Let's go to that next one. But what's the harm in going to that one if that's probably some of it? Because even if you do have something like a surgery or procedure, they're going to send you back to us anyways. So you may as well start on some of that stuff because you're going to be waiting for that so start with, start with you guys really start there. Cause that's also going to clear up their wait list. So instead of maybe having a two or three year wait list, because they are bombarded with so many referrals that don't need that level of care, all of a sudden, if we can feed some of those ones out and say, okay, your basic stress incontinence, your low grade prolapse, like all these things, let's put you in this one. Then all of a sudden that wait list shrinks. So the people that do truly need that level of care can get in quicker. So it's better for everyone. But just understanding that a lot of these symptoms get better. Like pelvic floor physio is the first line of defense for the majority of these things. I love that. And I, I, I know I think for myself that I, 
my takeaway from this episode would be once again, to always encourage women to ask more questions um, versus seeking a medication route. Cause that's my doctor is usually happy to give me something like that, but that's going to come with a whole other host of side effects and things like that. And a lot of these things, we're not meant to medicate them and make them go away. We're meant to work on them. And that's just like a metaphor for our whole lives. We're meant to work on stuff, not try and ignore it or get rid of it or whatever. So obviously you want to get rid of it, but in the wisest, healthiest way possible. Um, Lindsay, do you have any other questions before we ask our last couple? Um, I was just um, wondering if you know, because I'm in I'm in the United States, um, and I'm not finding um, a pelvic floor specialist. They're all everything says therapist. Is that like is that just a difference between the U.S. and Canada? Like is that just terminology, or is it really a completely different thing? No, that's just terminology. So pelvic floor okay. physiotherapist or pelvic floor therapist is actually like, that's our kind of quote unquote protected title. Um, okay. if somebody just says they're a pelvic specialist and you don't see the letters like PT, like physiotherapist or MD medical doctor or gynae or anything like that, maybe be a little bit weary of that. Um, cause those are the practitioners that are actually licensed to be doing these exams because that's the other thing obviously there will be there's there's people in every um department that are potentially going to kind of step out of their bounds so the ones that are licensed to be able to do internal uh exams and things like that you want to make sure that your provider is actually licensed and legal to do that um so yeah yes. in canada it's pelvic floor physiotherapists that are that are doing that your, your GPs, um, your gynecologist, obstetricians, everything like that. Very cool. Thank you. Mm -hmm. What is the best part of being a pelvic floor physiotherapist? Oh, um, I feel like the best part is being able to teach people about their own body. Um, so to be able to, it's kind of neat to be in this role at this time in the city that I'm in, because it is relatively new uh, to the area. And so it's really exciting to be kind of at that ground level to be the one to be able to make people aware of this, be able to provide that safe space for them to come in and talk about these things that it's very interesting that we all feel a little bit of like embarrassment, like so many women will be like TMI when they come in, they'll say TMI, this, this, this. And I'm like, you do realize that all I talk about all day long is this. Like there is very little that you're going to say that I'm not like, oh, my last three patients also have the same thing. Right. So right, yeah. it's interesting that we feel so much like shame, embarrassment, or that we feel alone or that we feel like this is just kind of our lot in life. When it's like, if you take your five best friends yeah. probably four out of the five of them, if not five out of the five of them are going to have at least one symptom of pelvic floor dysfunction or issue or anything like that. So it's, it's fun to be able to kind of create that space where people can come in and you watch, especially like men too, to be able to talk to a provider about it and not feel like you're being brushed off or to not feel like when you tell me something like, Oh, um, when we're having sex in this position, this happens, I pee or it hurts with this. And like, that's, that's a typical day in the office. So I'm never going to be like, Oh, like, 
it's kind of weird. Why would you tell me that? I'm like, tell me more, like, tell me all of these things. So <laughs> it's nice to see people be able to feel comfortable to talk about that because these are things that are affecting all of us. And they're things that are treatable and are able to be sometimes very easily helped. Um, so yeah, it's just nice to be able to provide that, that space for people provide the education on, on an area that again, I think should just be a little bit more standard um, that we shouldn't have to wait to see a specialist to just learn about our own anatomy but if that's my role that's my role um and yeah it's I think it's something again for women because the majority of women do um eventually have a child or something like that this is an area that goes through a lot of change and we shouldn't just leave you to fend for yourselves or kind of just do nothing so no I love that I do feel like I didn't ask enough questions about looseness (laughs) when you say like I want to be like when you said that about TMI I feel like I should be like this whole episode I've literally said like 10 crazy things about myself that the whole world probably doesn't need to know but I am always leading in vulnerability um but I was gonna say I can't be the only one feeling like over time my vagina is getting too big is there something that can be done to tighten up as to keep our sex lives and our whole area down there just a little bit stronger as we get older? Cause I didn't feel like this at 27. It's mm-hmm. just after my two kids. Mm-hmm. So the misnomer about this like sense of looseness. So remember that your vagina is a hollow organ that is meant to expand and contract. So when we are sitting here, we're not aroused, we're not doing anything. It's actually quite small and quite closed. When we feel aroused, it gets longer, it gets wider, it gets naturally lubricated um, to promote penetrative intercourse for reproduction, things like that. So it's meant to change shape and size over time. Obviously, we're meant to have a baby that way. We can't have a three-inch closed vagina and be able to deliver a whole child. So the idea that like our vagina just gets loose, things like that, sometimes there is a change in what we call your resting tone or your actual vaginal walls. Typically, that comes on if there has been an injury or when we do have some of those changes in hormones say around menopause. Um, So that can be a thing. The other thing that can happen is that those ligaments that are holding up those other organs like your bladder and your rectum which share the front and back walls of your vagina, if those start to kind of change or are a little more mobile or things like that, we can just feel an increase in that kind of motion of those and that gives us a sensation that something is loose or open when it's just the pressures that we're feeling the pelvic floor muscles that are that other component of saying yes. So they are what we call skeletal muscle, meaning that they are under our voluntary control. I can say contract my bicep, contract my pelvic floor muscles. I cannot say contract my bladder. So there's a difference in those ones. I can't say contract my vagina. That's not under my control. So when we're talking about skeletal muscle, we know that starting at age 30, If we just do nothing, we lose muscle mass starting at that age and it just goes. So that's why even for general body, we're like, hey, building up more strength before that point lets you start at a higher point before we hit that decline. And then continuing to do strengthening exercises over the period of your life helps to slow that decline or kind of keep it steady. Or in some cases, gain, depending on um, how much you're doing, nutritional things. So you can you can utilize that. 
we that does that mean that you have to do specific kegels quote unquote or pelvic floor muscle training specifically no because remember that when we do things like squats or lunges or deadlifts or running or anything like that if we are utilizing that whole system effectively and having that coordination we are technically getting load through those pelvic floor muscles okay so should we still be exercising that area through our life? Absolutely. Does it look like lay down and do 150 kilos every day for the rest of your life? Absolutely not. <laughs> I'd never leave my room. Right. And <laughs> not functional. Like we don't really need a lot of kegel or pelvic floor muscle strength when we're just laying on our back. We need it more so when we are upright and when we're doing activities that involve intra pressure. So there's a whole talk on function versus isolation and when we use them. But um yeah, you, so that when you're talking about like the tone and things like that, that's generally when women, that's your controllable factor. Um, the other controllable factor is if we are having some of that, those changes to your actual vaginal walls, that's a discussion with your gynecologist or your GP to discuss whether or not something like a vaginal estrogen may be warranted. Um, so again, that's bringing in a whole nother discipline to this, depending on where we're seeing some of that loss of tissue integrity or tensile strength or things like that um, to help with some of those symptoms of what you're calling looseness not my word your word <laughs> that's so funny when you say that about estrogen I think right after my son was born and my vagina shrunk and all that has or grew over itself or whatever happened they prescribed me this estrogen and I was already like 60 pounds overweight and I read it and it was like my cause weight gain. And I was like, I don't need sex ever again. I like threw it all in the garbage. I like had paid for it and then never touched it. I was like, you can keep your estrogen and your weight gain. Yeah. Over there. Not for me. No, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like we can't make that decision for you, right? Like we can't tell you what risk factors you are willing to take or not willing to take or what symptom is more or less important to you. My job is to listen to you and then do my best to kind of fit you with me or other practitioners that can provide you with what you need. Well, this was enlightening to say at the very least. This was awesome. Thank you so very much. You are yes, very thank welcome. You. Thank you for letting me ramble on for far more time than you wanted to. <laughs> it's no, not at all. It's funny because it's like, once you started talking, I realized, I realized now that I know what a pelvic floor is. I have more questions, right? Like that's where it's like, like, it's one of those things where once you start kind of peeling back that onion, mm -hmm. there's so much more that you're like, wow, this is a whole, this is a really big thing. And I'm just so glad that we even, you know, um, just got to have this discussion to enlighten people even this much, because I feel like that much, I feel smarter. Lindsay, do you feel smarter? Absolutely. Like I said, I knew nothing coming in and I feel very knowledgeable now. Thank you so much for all your uh, knowledge and for sharing so much with us. Where can mm -hmm. our listeners find you? So I am practicing out of 608 Health in Lethbridge, Alberta. Um, we are right downtown, 608 Fifth Avenue South. You can look us up online at 608health.com. Um, book online, you can call in to book. We offer meet and greets. So those are just kind of free 15 minute consults where you can come in and meet me, see if we jive. Um, if you don't like me, then we have another pelvic floor physiotherapist that maybe you'll <laughs> jive with better. So we always have that option. Um, or yeah, if you want to book in, you can just book in. Um, Looks like you have a pretty active Instagram page. 
Yeah, so we have, uh, our clinic kind of has a few things because we're a very big uh, multidisciplinary clinic, but the one specific to pelvic, pelvic health would be the 608 Women's Health page on that one. And then we have our overall clinic page um, at 608 Health. Awesome. Looks like there's yeah. lots of stuff. I, I'm coming to Lethbridge in March when Heidi turns 40. So I'm like, maybe I should go and get some sort of laser treatment or let you check out my vagina or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> either both, whatever. <laughs> And I'm open to it. (laughs) Thank you so much, Ashley. This was absolutely awesome. We really appreciate having you and have an awesome rest of your day. Thanks guys. Thank you so much for spending your time here with the more Jody podcast today. I am so thankful that you came along and listened to this episode. Please like subscribe, rate and review, share this with a friend. It would mean so much to me and have an awesome day. Go be the change that you want to see in this world.